everyone. Welcome to Life on Earth podcast. I am your host, Natalie Kra. Today's episode, I have an ultra special guest. She is so inspirational, Annie Carpenter. Annie Carpenter is a pioneer in the yoga world. She was also a professional dancer. Foremost, she's one of my teachers and mentors, as well as mentor to many other teachers around the globe. Annie is known to be the teacher of teachers. We met in Los Angeles many years ago. I have taken many of her trainings, workshops, and classes, as well as we worked at the same studio, Yoga Works. Today, I continue to learn from this inspiring woman, and I hope that you will enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Annie. We touch on so many aspects of yoga, both on and off the mat. If you enjoy the show, Life on Earth podcast, please subscribe and leave us a great review on iTunes, Apple Podcast. Share this episode with someone who can benefit, someone you love. Without further ado, Miss Annie Carpenter. Welcome to Life on Earth, the Peace Project, a podcast that teaches you how to connect with the divine and transform darkness into light through topics from yoga to nature and ultimately love. Join your host, Natalie Kwa, to celebrate and encourage diversity, peace and global equality, one earthling at a time. So I'm so excited to have you, Miss Annie Carpenter. Thank you so much for uh, being on Life on Earth podcast. I've been Literally wanting to have you since like day one. <laughs> Aww, thanks, Natalie. Annie, you know you have been such a important and influential figure in my life. I met you when I was in my early twenties, and I know for sure that for many other people as well in my community and other communities, and you know now you're a global yoga teacher, teacher, trainer, uh, mentor, I mean, everything. So there's so many questions that I have for you because I feel like you have seen so much, you know, and you have so much to offer us. So sometimes it's just really interesting to see the process of how that all happens. Well, I certainly have been at it for a while. (laughs) I know that, you know, I don't want to go too much, like we don't have to do an hour on your whole background, but do you want, because there are many people who maybe haven't heard, of course, like I've heard it so many times and I love it, but if you could share a little bit about maybe, you know, your dance background, how you got into yoga, just to give people a little context. Okay. Uh, Well, when I was a teenager, I was dancing. I mean, I was doing little classes in my little hometown in Virginia not professional stuff, but uh, I also fell in with a lot of recreational drugs. And luckily, um, my parents were sensitive enough to my situation that they sent me to a center. And part of the rehab was yoga. And so I really did fall in love with yoga when I was, I think, between 16 and 17. And it's been part of my life forever. In the early you know, years of my late teens and 20s, my work was dancing. I was a dancer in a big modern company in New York City for many years and taught dance through New York and around the world, really. 
But yoga was the thing, you know, at the end of a long day of dancing or rehearsals or whatever, I would head downtown. I lived downtown on the Lower West Side for a long time, and I would go to Swami Satchananda's studio, uh, Integral Yoga. And sometimes he was there. Anyway, so yoga was my way of sort of coming back home and getting centered. It was really sanctuary stuff. And the kind of yoga that we were doing back then, this is 70s, early 80s, was very soft. You know, there was carpet on the floor. There was no yoga mat yet. We had towels. <laughs> Our eyes were closed most of the time. You know, it wasn't a big, sweaty, physical thing. It was meditation. It was pranayama and a little bit of movement. Anyway, I don't think I would have survived as a dancer in New York without yoga. I mean, I, I just think it, it was my sanity. It was my, my heart's sanity, my spirit's sanity. And then I did teach uh, dance at university for a little while, but I just, it wasn't my thing. And so what started happening is I was doing more yoga than doing, and doing less dance. And so eventually teaching dance just felt kind of hollow and false. And so gradually I just started teaching yoga and it was just this slow transformation in my work life so that my work life then matched my spiritual life and my actual, what I did every day, which was yoga. And I stopped dancing altogether. And it was just a slow, steady, you know, what was meaningful to me. And when I would watch the dancers, what I would see is what they needed was not one more pirouette or, <laughs> you know, more flexibility or whatever, but what they needed was to heal their souls. And so, of course, it made sense for me to, you know, just say, yeah, this dance thing, it's not, it's not me. Um, you were a professional dancer, right? Yeah, yeah. I worked for... Um, you danced with Martha Graham, right? Yeah. Yeah, and taught at the school for a lot of years. I think I was always, frankly, a better dance teacher. I mean, I was a good dancer. I did well. But um, I think I loved teaching. Like, from the beginning, I loved teaching. It was a way for me to see people that wasn't confrontive, you know, and really be able to help people see themselves, know themselves better. Because, you know, as Martha said, the body doesn't lie. And so when you see people moving in space, you know, learning patterns of movement and feeling their own blocks in their body, whether that's a mental block or an actual physical block, and trying to find ways for people to accept who they are and feel themselves more fully and in the moment and then be able to move from that more whole place, that's a beautiful way of living. And that's what yoga promises. So I think that that's the piece that always spoke to me, whether it was modern dance or improvisation or yoga. The body and its motion has been my, my language, really, of how to see people and help people, including myself, know who we are in a more accepting and honest but loving way. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're one of those people that I feel like teaching, it's you, you know, when I see you teaching, always, I felt that even the first time I saw it, it's like very clear that you're in your element, 100%. I think that's true. And I just have to say, Natalie, that I'll, I remember the first time you came into my class way back when in Los Angeles. <laughs> you were always a very good student. <laughs> well, you know, I remember that, too. It, it's like so interesting, that first class to me, you know, it's because I was mainly practicing my sore 
for the longest time. And I, I don't think I had ever had anybody like you. So it was just very interesting. I think one of the, I don't know if it was the first or one of the first you, you know, it was a flow class, but you put us on the walls and we took like chairs and we were, you know, all the alignment, like Iyengar-ish. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I also think because I had also spent many years in Ashtanga doing, you know, Mysore practice for many, many years, that I think I have the ability to relate to people like, like you at that time. I mean, I love movement and Ashtanga, if nothing else, is breath and movement, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've learned ridiculous amount. I mean, literally, you've changed my life. Oh. Because I didn't have that concept of, I was just rewatching your, I mean, re, I guess redoing your, um, the Heart of Smart Flow course online. And, you know, I didn't have that concept of like how far you, that you could go too, you can go too far in a pose or you can retract back or finding that center, that core effort in return. And it's just like that totally changed everything, like on and off the mat, you know? Mm-hmm. Yay. Which is really interesting. But fast forward to yoga works. I'm interested in that too, because that's where we met. And I feel like a lot happened there. And there's so much history in at yoga works. Mm-hmm. Yoga works, Los Angeles, you end up there. How old were you when you met Mati and yoga works and all that? Oh, it was much later. I, I was, um, I think, 38. And I was still teaching at university, and I went out for the summer to do a yoga teacher training, <laughs> which at that time, you know, there was no yoga alliance. So I think it was like six weekends. So it's really, they were really short. And it was Lisa and Mati. And actually, it was a very dear friend of mine of many, many years who said, Annie, you need to go study with Chuck Miller. And that was really the reason I chose Santa Monica was, Annie, you got to go to Chuck. And, and it turned out it was summer, so I got to do the training. So I met Lisa Walford and Mati and Chuck. And yeah, Mati really... is Roddy, for those of you who are listening and wondering. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> you know, she was like my baby sister, or was my... Anyway, um, yeah, so it was a, a really remarkable summer, and I was very, you know, unhappy. Not angry, but just kind of bored with what I was doing at university and... And when it became clear that this was a good place for me to be, and she says, oh, you should come back and teach. At that point, you know, Mati was the one hiring. So this is mid-90s, and, you know, already we have Shiva Ray is teaching there. Sean Korn is a very young teacher there. Eric Schiffman. You know, there was already a lot of great yoga happening in L.A. Most of So it. much talent. It's just so crazy out of, like, you know, this sort of vortex of people. Like It was a real mecca. And while there was good yoga happening in other cities, including New York, where I had studied a lot of Iyengar when I was dancing there, it really was a mecca. And it was, you know, it's like that thousandth monkey rule. You know, it's starting to happen all over the world, but there's always a place or two where, you know, the monkeys figure out, oh yeah, this is a tool. This is happening. <laughs> this makes my life better. It was a really exciting time to be there. And I felt lucky and blessed and grateful, you know, all of those positive words were, I I was just, wow, I get to be in this. So you practice Mysore in that room at the Montana studio? I ended up practicing with Mati almost all the time. I would pop in with Chuck occasionally, but I ended up in the afternoon class and got some classes uh, straight away. And within six months, uh, literally, I was making a living as a yoga teacher in Los Angeles. 
Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. I mean, I was doing a lot of privates too, but yeah. Still. Yeah. And so I know that you all have collaborated on the way back. This is like, I don't, I don't remember how long ago the first yoga teacher training at Yoga Works started. Do you by any chance? I think it was opened in 87 and soon thereafter there started to be, you know, but these were not 12 week, 200 hour trainings. These were weekend trainings or three week training, you know, little shorter trainings. But at some point you collaborate with Lisa and Mati on the Yoga Works teacher trainings, right? Yes, but I didn't start leading trainings until after 2000. I think it was 2002 or three even before I actually was leading trainings. I was assisting before that, but I didn't like lead my own. Lisa and I co-led one. I think it was the end of 2002. You know, it seems to me that that would be the organic, natural process that somebody would apprentice and assist and teach and then have it lead to that. You know what I mean? And that whole thing got sped up, in my view, you know, as someone who trains trainers now, because Mati and Chuck were leaving because they sold the studio. And so I kind of had to get pushed forward literally to take, you know, Mati's place and co-lead with Lisa. Yeah. So like in your classes, I think that's where I'm trying to get to. There is a sense that there is the flow that I can maybe relate it to, you know, the vinyasa movement linked to breath, dancing, Mysore and all that. But then there is the alignment base that's very Iyengar alignment base, correct? Correct. So my question to you, because I know we have a lot of yoga teachers listening and a lot of people in the vinyasa, the flow world, power yoga, whatever you want to call it. Why is it that you feel that it's so important to have that, you know, that that combination works so well? Because from my seeing and experiencing and seeing it with other people, including students, I really do feel there's it's like a jewel, you know? Mm. Well, there's a couple things. The first thing is, I think the human body just naturally likes to move. I mean, look at children. I think we are happy when we're moving. So that bottom line, if I can get people moving a little bit, then they're going to be happy. They're going to start to trust themselves and trust the process of feeling themselves. So embodiment comes, I think, to most of us much more easily through movement than through stillness. Also, a little bit of movement warms up the joints. So, you know, it's, it's a really good process. To then bring alignment in, you know, my view is that most people want to learn. And if you choose one thing to focus on, one specific movement or movement continuum to focus on during any one practice, and you dive in, starting with a very simple expression of that movement that might be quite exploratory and not terribly precise so that people can play and sense how it is in this moment. And then as the practice progresses, just take that, make it more and more specific and more and more challenging, whether that means do that movement upside down or do that movement balancing on one hand or, you know, on and on and on, but always with an eye to working with some one thing and its continuum. Oh, how far can I do this before I can no longer stabilize? Or if I use this much effort, how does something else in my body have to be compromised? Or any number of inquiries that we might take, but we continue to dive pretty much single-pointed, and that gets into the sort of philosophical side of yoga, which is the ekagrata, learning to focus the mind on one thing over time. 
And we can do that with specificity of movement. And so I say this in trainings often. I love to hear people leave a class and, you know, get on their phones right away, which we all do, (laughs) and say, oh, guess what we worked on today? Or guess what I discovered about myself today? You know, to have a takeaway that's specific and that relates to who I am, that's a nice yoga practice. Yeah, that's a really beautiful thing. And that kind of feeling of getting out of your class and having all kinds of revelations, it's something that I really miss Mm. not having you around, you know, because there are teachers that can do that for you. And there are others who, unfortunately, not. Well, if it's not a priority, then, you know, you're just not going to get there. You know, there's other teachers who will give you all kinds of movement, which is super fun. It just depends what your goal is. I have a few things that I wanted to kind of have your touch on that Mm -hmm. I love when you talk about yoga as an inquiry and Mm -hmm. um, how it's always changing. And it doesn't have to look like a photo or even like when you get on your mat, like 10 years ago, your practice, right? So to me, that's something that has always stuck with me on a very deep level. And I try to do that in my practice as well as with my students. Like, how are you today? Because to me, that also brings that satya, right? That's right. There is, I I presume, (laughs) I'll let you know when I'm on my deathbed, (laughs) but there is, I presume, a truth, you know, that, that supersedes all of our individual truths. But I think to be open to the idea of the truth of each moment is a really good way to, you know, walk through this world and certainly be on our yoga mats or on our cushions sitting And it is always shifting. You know, you said over the the last 10 years. Um, (laughs) So this morning I've been rewriting uh, one of the little sections in one of the teacher training manuals that I've made. And, you know, it's really different uh, from how I was teaching it even 15 years ago. This is teaching, not just how I'm practicing it, but the sort of principles by which I ask people to really look after their own bodies and place their attention. And what I'm talking about is twists. And I think you've experienced with me, you've been around me in, uh, in the last five or six years. I'm talking about just the simple idea of should I square my pelvis in a standing twist, for example. And that's how I used to teach it. That's how I was trained to do it for years and years and years and years in several traditions. And now I say, let's not do that. Let's find a longer continuum such that the the crux, if you will, of that continuum is actually not at lumbar five S1, but somewhere past the hip socket, say towards mid thigh or even calf or even back heel so that there's a lot less strain on the sacroiliac joints. And I dare say that's one of the reasons I have very tender and hypermobile SI joints, and I feel, frankly, sad and guilty and upset that I insisted on people practicing that way for as many years as I did, because I do believe it's not the healthiest way to practice. So here I am, you know, in my 60s going, shit, I don't think that was the best way to practice. (laughs) And and I am literally reaching out to old students and anyone who's done my training and sending them updates to manuals because I feel like as I continue to learn and expand and evolve and hopefully continue to grow, 
that I want to, you know, stay abreast and help everyone else grow. It's a funny thing to have a revelation. And I, I can't say that I'm injured, but I do believe that it is a source of hypermobility, which means you have to be even more hypersensitive to stabilizing. And so, in a word, it's just not as fun because you have to be more careful. <laughs> yeah, and but that this brings me to what one of the things I really truly love about, I think, and that's why I connect with you, your teaching so much, like standing on the shoulders of the past and yet honoring tradition. And at the same time that you're honoring tradition, you are able to be open to new discoveries. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that my teachers were stupid or even ill-informed. I do believe that I am one of the first generations who have practiced this hard for this long. So I don't think we knew the outcome of practicing this, the strong practice that many of us do these days, six to seven days a week. For me, for what I'm in, you know, 40, almost 50 years of practice, of daily practice that has been a strong practice. So I think we're figuring out, oh, well, actually, if you let this shift a little bit this way or, you know, whatever the case is, then you're probably going to last a little longer and put less strain on certain joints and certain tissues. So, you know, there's no blame. It's just... I want to make sure my students and anyone else who's interested in practicing into their 60s, 70s plus that, you know, hopefully I can share some of the lessons that I've learned. And so um, things are always evolving in, in a way. Thank goodness. I think I'd be bored stiff, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes, for sure. So how does Smart Flow gets born? Like, I don't, And I don't say particularly like the business. I mean like the concepts and the ideas of how is this something that it's kind of a lifelong when you first launched it, you had all this information and then now it keeps evolving, correct? Yeah, it, it's definitely continues to evolve. I, well, as you know, Natalie, my, the whole system is based on eight primary movement principles. And uh, just two, three years ago, we added a ninth one, or I added a ninth one because I felt like it wasn't represented well enough. And that has to do with lateral movement. And I'll send you a copy of that one, by the way. I don't think you have it. Anyway, so yeah, I had been leading teacher trainings for uh, Yoga Works, which were fine teacher trainings. And then I realized it really, you know, it had become more and more systematized, which it has to do when there's so many studios and so many, you know, younger trainers. There was really not a lot of place for the trainers to have exploration and creativity and inquiry. And so how on earth could there be that for the students? Anyway, so I left that and left, went to another studio and started to create my own trainings. And it happened really fast. When I finally sat down and just started writing about what I think matters, the 200-hour manual came out of me in just a few months. Uh, it was really quite remarkable. I had a, a wonderful young student, you know, Lucy Jordan, who was sort of at my side editing the manual as I was writing. And that was really helpful to have one say, she would always say, anyway, what do you mean by this? <laughs> you know, and I, but I mean, um, it's like, you know, it's your life's work. You've, you've right. put so much into it. It's that it, it, I don't think it, yeah, it happened overnight to put it down on the paper, but not, you know what I mean? That's just a lot of experience right there. 
Yeah, that was just a big download. Yeah, that's what we call that. Exactly. That is a download. I mean, you're considered the teacher of teachers, you know, for many. You train trainers, you train teachers, studio owners, all that. And it's just, you also, I want to say that you are a master at sequencing. Mm. I think I told you that in one of the trainings, I mean, I don't know, when I, last time, a few times, maybe like a few years ago, I saw you that. I am completely in love with sequencing now, you know, and that's really, it was you that planted the seed. And Mm. I've never seen anybody work with sequencing that kind of way. And maybe it's also because you were a dancer, but there's just something in your mind that works in a very particular way for sequencing, you know? I think that's true. And um, that was one of the key things that I really needed to push away from the yoga works method. And I think many, many yoga trainer methods, because I think most of them are very much, in my view, goal oriented because it's towards a peak pose. I find that it works really well for the few people in any given class who are flexible enough or strong enough or whatever to get to the intended peak pose. But that means that there's a whole set of people who aren't flexible enough or strong enough or on any given day focused enough to get there, which means you're going to have your winners and your losers, basically. And But also, more to the point, it's goal-oriented. And I think the point of yoga is to move away from goal, meaning get there and be in the present moment, which implies goallessness and exploration and inquiry. And it's when we let go of specific goal that we start to really forgive ourselves and be with ourselves without a particular expectation, which means, yeah, I got this, or, oh, gosh, I suck. You know, any of that competitive comparison stuff, whether it's comparing yourself to yourself or to someone else or to some ideal that exists somewhere. And so to move away from a sequence that is organized around trying to get to one specific pose is to invite acceptance and exploration and self-inquiry. And that is what brings us to true transformation, not just being able to take my foot behind my head, for example. Mm -hmm. So just to put this in very practical terms, if somebody's trying to go, you know, get to like a peak pose or the fullest expression of the pose that could, but that day on that day, that is not it. Then that could be that you are in a modified uh, version, but you still practicing the blueprint of the pose, but you are where it feels that it's authentic and truth to you on that day. Well, that's true for any pose, even Shavasana. (laughs) You know, but I, again, I think we can all sense when, when we've been in a class with even a very, very talented or skilled teacher that you can feel the steady march and they want to get us to, I'm just going to say half moon pose, say it's a more level one, one, two class. And you can just feel, oh, prep for that, prep for this, prep for that, and then half moon. But that, again, that march towards any one thing is a goal that we're either going to make or not make. And thus, that line of success or failure is presented, is in our hearts, however subconscious, constantly. And so rather, I'm not suggesting we can't go deeper, 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 but it's very different to continue to explore more and more deeply than to try to get to any one place, any one pose. Yeah. Yeah. 
So then what is the process nowadays when you're teaching and leading people through a sequence? Are you 100% present with the room and seeing what's going on and there's no sort of goal-oriented in your head? I mean, I'm sure now there's it's a very different thing. I mean, like you said, you've been on this for like 40 years, so... I like to practice strong and you, you come to my class, you're going to, you're probably going to get a good sweat and you're going to work hard. And if you're not used to working this way, you'll probably be sore the next day. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't, you know, continue to build strength. I, I think we need to build strength constantly. But if the goal is to continue to explore any specific continuum of motion, as opposed to arrive at a particular pose shape, that's a very different orientation and, and I think, I mean, I'm imagining people who don't know, you know, what smart flow is or how we practice this. It might be hard to understand the distinction and, you know, maybe you have to experience it, but it is very, very freeing. Well, um, I mean, you have lots of classes online, so I'm going to say <laughs> right now true. to all of the listeners, definitely take Annie's class online, Annie Carpenter, and you'll or find... Or come to the Bay. I'm not that far away. That's right. <laughs> well, and, you know, we're, I was going <laughs> to mention this on show notes and at the end, too, but we can say that already, AnnieCarpenter.com, <laughs> you'll see all the... You have lots of events, and you have lots of workshops, and you have lots of places where people can come. We can come meet you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yay. Okay, so any, you know, fast forward, like I seen like yoga evolve and seeing how things are, which I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. You know, I, I, I'm like you, I love India, I love all the traditional classical yoga stuff, but I'm also very open. I also have a dance background and I am all about things evolving and through whether it's through experience or science or, you know, and I've seen, there's something that I feel like it's getting a little lost though which is the importance of a yoga teacher. Mm. And I would like to hear your perspective and why do you feel like a yoga teacher is an important aspect of someone's journey in the yoga? Well, I think at its heart, in anything we do, it's very hard to have perspective on self. And, you know, to put it as simply as, I think my arms are straight in downward dog, and then I go to class and my teacher says, actually, you're hyperextending your elbows. You know, so that's the simplest expression of this. You know, someone said, oh, Annie, I heard you were such a hard teacher back in the 90s. And, you know, you were really kind of, it was tough. I said, well, I still am very insistent. I think, I think the word people use is insistent. And I am insistent. But I'm not being insistent about make your arms straight. I'm being insistent at wake up. Wake up. Where'd you go? And so whether you are a beginner in asana and you need someone to say, put your hands here, or your arm isn't straight yet, or you're further along and you need someone to recognize the moments when you drop into habit or check out altogether and say, hey, come back. I know this is hard for you. Can you try again? Can you stay present now? And again, can you stay present now and do so with love and patience so that you can learn love and patience with yourself and learn to stay present, to be here now. That's why we do yoga. Exactly. And I mean, that sounds so simple, but it's so sometimes and oftentimes so challenging because always, always. I feel like it's so easy to check out. Mm-hmm. So it's so easy to, to go to a practice, to go to a class and to all of a sudden you think you're 
you're doing yoga. You're like, okay, I already got this. I'm doing yoga. And then it's like you're checked out in the yoga class. <laughs> so I need like someone like you or a good teacher to pull us back. And I think, yeah, that's a beautiful answer you give. And, you know, just to elaborate on that question, you know, I think that's what's happening. I'm not like, it's not a bad judgment or anything. I just feel like because we have so much, you know, the internet and so many online classes and YouTube and with the vouchers and, you know, things like that, people are like popping into different studios versus a few years ago, even or 10 years ago or 20, you would mostly go to one studio, you know, one teacher would be so you would have that. So it's just something that I would like for people to think about and try to cultivate that student teacher relationship, even though we have so many options and we're so scattered, you know. Yeah, like it or not, we are best served most of the time when we have some loving presence to hold ourselves accountable to. That's a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> yeah. We all need it. I need it. I have a teacher I can go to. I mean, I don't go every day like I used to, but I have someone that I go to that I trust. So that brings me to practice. What is your um, advice for all of us? Uh, whether we're practitioners or teachers or somebody who's, you know, getting into yoga. Like, what about practice? Do you feel, I know that you've always put that on us, that practice is so important, right? To get on the mat and to work. And also meditation. I know you do a lot of that. You do pranayama. Well, you know, that's the deal. Yoga is a practice. And yes, I I think I do make a, a little more time to feel my practice in my life, (laughs) or, you know, to do my best to have those things merge when I can, you know, in simple ways. But yeah, I get on that mat every day. I get on that cushion every day. And uh, if I don't have that, you know, I feel like I don't have anything to say to my students, for starters. It's how you fill the well. I mean, going to trainings and having a good teacher and all of that is essential. And if you're not practicing on your own, you know, the well is just stuff. It's just stuff in there. It's not inner juice that you can return to and fill yourself up with. And if it happens so often, I see so many, especially newer teachers, that they get so busy, you know, sometimes teaching so many classes all over town. And before you know it, you're burnt out and you don't have a practice anymore, but you're teaching, you know, 10, 12, whatever, 20 classes a week. It's a balance, you know, that you have to. You have to practice because if you're not getting on your mat and you're not practicing, then how are you going to show up to teach all of those classes? Absolutely. And we are busy. And I also feel like many, especially maybe the younger ones, well, no, all of us, you know, feel like there also has to be time for physical fitness. We want to stay strong. We want to look good in our bodies. We want to be able to go on a big hike or whatever it is you like to do. And so the fitness cuts into our time too. And as much as fitness is great, it's not yoga. You know, it's not that get on the mat and check in with self and, you know, really see and feel how am I doing certainly in my body, but how am I doing in relationship with myself? Mm. And I don't know about other people, but, you know, if I go to the gym or Pilates or whatever, which is about fitness, I don't have space for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your meditation practice? Yeah, you know, it's changed. It changes a lot. 
Like right now, I'm actually doing a little online January challenge. Tara Brock's new book is out, and I'm doing her little, I think it's 10 or 12-day challenge. And so I, that's what I'm doing in the mornings. I'm listening to that, and there's a little interview and then a daily challenge. And, and you know, so that's, that's what I'm doing these two weeks. But normally it's, you know, I sit and I breathe. Breathing is my best, for me, the best portal into sitting. I breathe because it gets my attention in and it's calming for me. And I just sit and I watch the breath and I watch my thoughts. And, you know, over the years you see the same kinds of thoughts coming. And you, or I try to, you know, be more patient and notice when they, those same thoughts or blockages come up in relationship. And, you know, I, I guess it's insight meditation. My primary meditation teacher when I was really getting going in LA was Trudy Goodman from Inside LA. She's amazing. And that's what she does is insight. So I, I think that's that's probably what I could call what I do. So you feel less reactive? You, you do feel the difference? In my better days, certainly. <laughs> It's a practice. Yeah, definitely. No, I think I am. And, and I think I can predict when I'm going to be, there's going to be a reactivity in a difficult relationship or, you know, something going on in the world. I know how to make more space between myself and that. So another thing I heard you say that really resonates with me, and I love this, is do your practice without expecting the fruits of your practice. Or, you know, it's a duty and a privilege to show up fully. And also having that commitment regardless of the results. Well, I stole that from the Bhagavad Gita now, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> and moving away from desire and fear, which I think oh, is another huge thing too, because a lot of times it feels in, and I'm just saying as a human being that either, you know, it's like I want happy, 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 or sad, sad, or I'm like, fearful of something or I really want the desire and finding that neutral equanimity is so challenging too so I mean it's the work you know for me at least me too I think for all of us Natalie absolutely in the yoga practice we call that those are two of the primary kleshas so these are the obstacles that we are born with and I think being a human being we can't help but have those two in particular desire and fear and as we start to recognize, again, the ideas, the situations, the types of things that we desire or we're afraid may happen, that we can sit with them for longer periods. But, uh, you know, the wisdom of classical yoga via Patanjali, the fifth of those five kleshas is Abhinivesha, which is the clinging to life, which, again, anything that's alive, if you've ever watched anybody, any human or even any cat die, you know, we all want to live. It's that you can see it in the, even the last minute of life. And so the great practices, both yogic and Buddhist practices of being with the idea of death is imminent, you know, however far away it is, it's still going to happen. For me, one of the great meditations of all time is being with, this could be my last breath. Mm. And it's hard. And most people will have panic you know, literally anxiety around that. But uh, as you're able to be with that, you know, for two breaths, meaning a short period of time. And then, you know, and part of it is you get old and, and dear people, you know, you love and family members die. Yeah, um, it was actually, it was on my list to ask you about mortality. You have a really, I guess, elegant way to and graceful to describe it. 
Well, I don't know about that, but you know, I certainly have had opportunities to be with people I love dying and the shock, like with Mati, of wait, what? Why did she die? She's too young, you know, all of that, and both types. But it, it is, you know, the ultimate truth is, you know, any life, even a redwood tree, which might get 1,500, 2,000 years, <laughs> whereas we only get, you know, 50 to 100, life is not designed to be forever. And to find ways to be comfortable with that that are not dimming to our passions, but rather light up our passions. Yeah, great. So today, what can I do today? How can I make my days full and rich and meaningful? Because they are limited rather than, oh, my God, I'm afraid I'm going to die. I don't want to do anything. I might hurt myself. (laughs) Um, That is, no, I mean, we can laugh about it, but on some level, And frankly, on some deep cellular level, that is happening all the time. We are constantly protecting ourselves. You know, oh my God, that could be poison. Oh my God, look both ways before you cross the street. All of that stuff is trained into us, both like software, but also hardwired in. Yeah. And to be able to live without that, oh, what's going to happen next? And rather live joyfully, no matter what, no matter what the outcome is the promise, the blessing, the gift, but also the work of any good yoga practice or any good spiritual practice, I think we could say. Agreed. And I am so glad that you brought up the Kalashas because Mm. you have this amazing thing on YouTube that I'm going to invite everyone. In fact, I get all of my students to watch all of them, (laughs) the little videos on the Kalashas. Oh, that's from a long time ago. Yeah, but I love it. Okay, good. Because it's so, they each of them are short and very concise, and it just makes a lot of sense the way you explain them, and it, it they show up a lot. And it's just, you're like, wow, this information can really change and transform my life. Just the yoga philosophy is just so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and you explaining it, it really helps. So in this this meditation that you were talking about, I was I wanted to ask you this. I don't know if you've ever done this or you're thinking about it, but have you ever led a death meditation? Oh yeah, I'm really careful with them because if anybody in the room has anxiety, I mean, you never know in a room, even if say 20 people, there could very likely be someone who is living with, let's just say cancer or their mother is. There could very likely be someone who is so entrenched with, say, anorexia that the idea of not having another breath is almost an invitation. Are you with me? Like, we have to be really careful. This is a deep, deep meditation that in some states, emotional states, can be not helpful. So it's not the kind of thing I just throw out there. Like last weekend, I was up at Multiversity for the sort of new version of the Yoga Journal Conference. That's such a beautiful spot. Yes, it it was great. But do you know what I mean? Like here I am with a room of whether it's 40 people or 90 people, and I don't know what anybody's going through. And I believe that that one is so powerful because it really cuts to the quick. So maybe what I'm hearing you say, too, is if you were going to bring someone through a journey like that, it would you've always told us something to teach to what you advertise or to be true to the class levels as well. Could that be true if somebody has the skill for that to then you'll say, OK, this is what's going to happen today. And whoever signs up is because they really want to go in that journey with you. 
Yes, exactly. Or if I'm in a training, say a 10 or 12 day training where I'm seeing people every day and I have a sense of, you know, is anyone particularly tender in their life right now? Does that make sense? Yes. I need to know that it's going to be okay. Pranayama and these deep meditations, these are the things that if you're a little bit off psychically, emotionally, it can take you over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is why I don't take pranayama lightly. You know, there's only a handful of people that that I've ever practiced pranayama in my life with. And you're one of them. And you had that Sunday class and I'd come sometimes uh, besides teacher trainings, you know, but to me, that's just such a portal that I have so much respect. And also it's a, I don't want to just do it with whoever and whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the concept of abhyasa and vairagya, it's mm-hmm. a beautiful one. Yeah. Do you mind just give us like a little crash course? Yeah. So these two terms are, um, I can't remember, this might have been Mr. Iyengar who described them this way. They are like a bird with two wings. And if one is stronger than the other, then the bird can't fly well. And so it's the idea that on the one wing you have show up, do your practice. And on the other wing, and here we go again, is don't expect anything specific to come from that. And it is the idea, if you stay with it long enough, and if you watch birds flying long enough, (laughs) you can see that depending upon the weather, meaning what's going on in their lives, as a metaphor, one wing may have to do more flapping or leaning in, in some particular way, and the other one may back off. So if you're feeling particularly lazy or unfocused, then you may have to really make yourself get up, get on the mat, put your timer on and, you know, (laughs) or get yourself to a class every day for a solid month because you just can't do it on your own. So that would be the abhyasa side of things. And the vairagya is a little harder to explain because I think in our society, in our civilization, it, you know, we're not rewarded unless we create some thing or make certain amount of money or build a new invention or you know a new app or whatever it is right we we like to see results things that we can hold in our hands and that's the antithesis of vairagya vairagya is the result of effortless efforting and even that i think is a dance that very few of us can stay with for any length of time because it's challenging. We like to work hard. We like to have success. And this is the opposite of that. Can you show up and stay present and stay with it over time, even though you may never, ever have anything specific to show for it? Wow. That's beautiful. Well, it's difficult. I mean, let's, you know, and and it's a call for patience, acceptance, Love for self, love for others. That's what it's a call for. Yeah, which is the practice, you know, each and every day. Um, I got three more questions for you. So why nature? I know you love, I had to mention this, I know you love birds. I know you Mm -hmm. love trees. I know you love nature. When I see you around that, like when we were at the Redwood Forest, you're just like a little kid, you know? (laughs) True. So, yeah, it's just so awesome. You love birds. 
Yeah, I started birding when I was a teenager, and then I moved to New York City, and you know, you, you can see a lot of pigeons there and <laughs> some house sparrows, but not a whole lot else. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I mean, I think everyone does, Natalie. I just think we don't have the means, meaning the time, or live in a place where nature is. You know, I can walk into a fairly nice wood, you know, in, in five minutes from where I live now, which is different from when I lived downtown New York. And I don't know what it is about birds. I, I've always been drawn to birds. I, I mean, literally, since I was a little kid, in the same way that other people, are, you know, like Brock is drawn to sea turtles. I, who knows what that is? I'm definitely built like birds. I'm tiny, and it seems like my bones are hollow sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but I just love them. And, you know, even if you get the opportunity, and I'm saying this to people who don't get why anyone is a birder, if you get the opportunity to sit still for even four or five minutes and watch a bird do what it does, whether that's a great blue heron, you know, fishing and catching a fish and watching it go down its skinny little neck, it's crazy, or, or to watch a song sparrow sing in the spring, its whole body is producing this sound. You know, just these daily acts of life. And this is not, you know, trying to be spectacular. This is just how they live. And they live without reservation, without expectation. You know, they just are doing their thing. And then the trees. Now, trees are special because their sense of time, you know, is so much longer than ours, right? You know, like an elephant might easily live 100, even 110 or 20, whereas we probably only get 70, 80 on average. You know, a redwood tree can live 1,000, 2,000 plus years. So you stand next to an ancient tree, just stand there. Mm -hmm. And all your little petty concerns just seem like petty concerns. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's so healing. It's so healing. Um, it's, it, yeah, immediately everything changes. Yeah, everything changes. <laughs> it's really beautiful that you cultivate that, you know, mm -hmm. Just like you show up for your practice, you show up for your time with the trees and the nature. And it shows in your teaching, too. I don't know if you know that, but. No, thank you for saying that. What was the biggest lesson you learned in 2019? <laughs> is there one? Yeah, there is. You know, because Mati died and also my older brother died in 2019. Yeah. And, um, you know, just... <laughs> we got to use this time that we have. And by that, I mean staying in touch with the people we love and even the people we love a little, <laughs> you know, but certainly with the people we love. And so many of us travel so much or live away from dear friends. And it's hard. It is hard to stay in touch and to, to honor and, and bless the connections we have because we never know when they're going to be broken. It's so easy to say, oh, yeah, I'll call you next week. Yeah. And then next week doesn't always come. And if it doesn't, how do we recover from that, you know? Well, we don't. Well, maybe I haven't figured it out yet, but I don't know that I have recovered from any of it. I mean, I, you know that I lost my yeah. husband years ago, and, um, you know, he still lives. There's a little section in my heart. I don't know what it's called, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And he's still in there, and I still dream about him occasionally, even though I'm very happy in my new relationship of 15 years now, you know. Yeah. Um, 
I dare say I will, you know, on the mat and walking down the street, I will remember things Mati said to me as a student, but also to me as a dear friend. My big brother, oh my God, you know, all the time we spent together as kids, you know, I'll never, that his energy, his playful, you know, I'm not playing by the rules energy. He was a really fun, kind of crazy guy. I hope his energy stays with me because he makes me more courageous. <laughs> why, he, he gives you that, that why not? Let's try it kind yeah. of energy. So it's a good remembering sometimes. Oh, it's a fab. I just feel, again, I feel blessed and I miss them. Yeah, I, I mean, them. you know, it's so challenging for us to accept this mortality. And as you know, also, you mentioned, you know, I think we were all shocked with Mati. You had other, your brother, and, you know, we've all had pets and, you know, exa- and just recently, Kobe Bryant. I mean, and I feel like I see people grieving you know, but also confused. Yeah. Like, how can this happen? And it's, as you said, at the same time, it's going to happen to all of us. That's right. But how, you know, then we keep going back and looping in this question, like, but how can this happen? And it's almost like we're in denial. We are in denial. And I think to be human and to live a life that is finite is to pretend that that life is not finite. I just think that's how every morning we wake up, we tell ourselves a lie. Oh, another day, of course. And that we expect to go to bed and have the next day. That's a lie that we have to tell ourselves to continue. That's a lie we have to tell ourselves so that we can remain in relationship with people that we're close to and even not so close to. You know, just the whole act of civilization. You know, we all have to agree that what a red light means is stop. You know, it's this whole mesh, this whole matrix of things that we agree to believe on in together so that we can get through a day. And that includes the imaginary belief or the denial, as you say, that we're going to live forever. It's tough, that reality, the reality that we're not. I don't think we should go around every minute of every day thinking, oh, I'm about to die. Oh, I'm about to die. I mean, that, that's a mantra I don't want to embrace. <laughs> yeah. And to have meditations or moments in life where we get more comfortable with that, even for 10 minutes. Oh, this is the truth. Yes, it's really powerful. I definitely, I am a person that, I, you know, I'm sure you know that I like to go there. <laughs> with, that, with that thought, you know, I do that sometimes. And it's important to me to have that awareness. Yeah. Okay, I have to ask you this. It wasn't on my thing, but you mentioned it, and it's more of a personal inquiry. I, you mentioned you're with your beloved, and I, I know him. He's amazing for 15 years. What is the secret to this, like, to partnership? I mean, I don't expect, like, a black and white answer, but sometimes that, too, relationships can be so challenging. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I can't speak for what works for us in, in the sense that it would work for everyone. And what I know is that Sam and I each have very evolved personal lives, meaning we have things and people in our life that we love and we're very committed to. And that's independent of how we're together. Like Sam loves his work. He's a sound engineer. Obviously, I love my work. And so we give each other a lot of space and independence and 
I think we do our best to support each other in letting that be a huge part of each one of our lives and celebrating it when the other one is having a wonderful moment or or supporting when the other is having a difficult moment in that piece. So really letting and seeing and supporting each other have whatever it is that they love and are committed to, which is longer than our relationship. You know, I've been doing this way longer than I've known Sam. Sam's been doing his work way longer than he's known me. So I think supporting each other's loves, and I don't mean love affairs, I mean loves, the other things in life, I think is is for us a really big piece of our lives. And I think for people who are as independent as we are, if there's work, that is to make sure we don't become too independent, that we remind each other to come back and check in and take holidays together and, you know, make sure we do have good, you know, for lack of a better word, quality time together on a very regular basis. So that is our work. Whereas I think other people who need more and more us time and less independent time, it would be, you know, different things. But I for independent sorts like us who have very evolved and happy, for the most part, work lives, we, you know, to support and allow that, I think, is a big piece for us. Yeah, that's that's awesome, Annie. So mm. any advice for the newer teachers, newer yoga teachers in the world, anything that you could advise them? No more than I try to remind myself every day, you know, is just to keep finding ways to stay curious and learn new things as often as you can. Yep. I love that. Yeah, because I, we need this advice. I need that advice. We all do, you know. And and just think of how excited we are when we're learning something new. We all are. And what know? about for those of us who have been at it for a while and it's like, how can we keep it fresh? Same thing, girl. Sorry. It's what is, is there any one, even some tiny thing? I mean, I literally will go out there in the woods and I will see birds communicating to one another that are very different. And that's something that will come up when I'm like checking in on my mat in the beginning of a practice. And I will use that, you know, oh, well, how can my, my right shoulder communicate with my left inner knee? Mm-hmm. Hello? You know, what kinds of things spark your interest, spark your imagination, get you curious again? And whether that's, again, go back to a teacher, go do a training. Keep it fresh. Yeah. Keep learning. Keep learning. Stay curious. Yeah, stay curious. I love that. So any... Anything fun coming up? What are you excited about 2020? You got a lot going on, right? Always, I feel. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I like to stay busy. Um, yeah, you know, what I've done is I've broken up some of the longer trainings into like weekend formats. And so I'm pulling things apart. So, for example, uh, the next two weekends, I'm doing something just dedicated to the pelvic girdle. And so we're going to look at all of the possible movements in the pelvic girdle, all the ways the pelvic girdle can be destabilized, but also be stabilized. And then once we understand that in a really basic sort of somatic way, then we'll take that into poses, standing, seated, inverted, all of those poses, but coming from an understanding of a mobile but stabilized pelvic girdle. So that I'm super excited about. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Yeah, oh, I was going to say, like, if somebody wants to study with you, I mean, I think you're kind of talking about that right now, but I'm sure some of our listeners are like, how can I get in this? How can I do trainings with Annie? So you're saying these modules. 
Yeah. So I don't do the 200 hour training anymore. Tiffany and a couple other people do them down in LA. But my advanced training is modules and anybody can do a module. You know, if you just want to come in and try, you know, 20 hours or 40 hours or something, that's fine. Or you can do the whole 300 and you can take up to three years to do it. You know, if you live far away, just pop in and do a week, one year and a couple weeks the next. I try to keep it very fluid. And I also try to keep it fluid because I am continuing to learn and expand and I need that. Mm -hmm. I can't teach the same 300 hour year after year because it's just not as meaningful. And so I'm not going to be as an inspired teacher. So I keep adding on. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So yeah, I'm going to include your website, but I'll say it anycarpenter.com. Is there any other way that people can connect with you? Instagram? Yeah, Instagram, anycarpentersmartflow. And I'm going to say, I'm going to invite everybody to definitely come learn from you because you're just the best. Uh-huh. You're so sweet. Thank you. you are, you're like an amazing force. You're an amazing force on so many levels. And I just feel so honored to know you in this lifetime. And, you know, I want to continue to learn from you. I'm curious about all the stuff you are continuously putting out. If I could, logistically, I would be at every training. But, you know, <laughs> life happens. So... I really appreciate your time and I appreciate you answering these questions and just appreciate you, you know, the whole life that I've known you. So it's thank awesome. You, Natalie. Yeah. Thank you, Annie. So, all right. Well, I'll let you go. Bye. Bye, Natalie. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Life on Earth. You can help us by taking a few minutes to leave a rating and review on iTunes. For more inspiring content, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Search Life on Earth in iTunes or visit lifeonearth.podbean.com.